AVXL episode 202 was recorded on April 30th, 2023. Rob's got a mid-spring TV update for you. Do your front speakers need to match your rears? Some help doubling subwoofers. How many folks use their consoles to watch video anyhow? The answer might surprise you. And Patrick's HDR slider adventure with Game of Thrones. Don't forget, email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us. And thank you. Thank you. Seriously. Thank you to everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Testing one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AVXL, the best of home theater and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. And you, sir, have a giant pile of updates on all of the fancy new TVs this spring. The spring update. Spring cleaning. Yeah. Some stuff is out and available. Some stuff we are still waiting for. In that (laughs) category of still waiting for is Sony, who decided for 2023 to give it a couple extra months before they actually release their products. They're quoting late spring for the release of the 2023, at least their premium TVs, including the highly desirable A95L, which is the QD OLED TV, the successor to the A95J, I want to say. That beautiful display I had a chance to work on a couple weeks ago. Uh, One thing when I was looking through the listing on the Sony website was that I was mildly surprised to see that this TV and maybe some of their other premium TVs actually come bundled with something called the Bravia Cam Accessory. This is a Uh probably a USB camera slash microphone, and among its many features... Uh, is that, one, you can have automatic picture and sound optimizations based upon where you are actually sitting in the room. And that also includes uh, volume-based adjustments based upon your viewing distance. It'll actually realistically measure how far away you are from the screen and be able to control volume in that particular manner. There's also a power reduction function. If you actually leave the room, it'll dim the screen and then brighten it back up when you walk back into the room. (laughs) They also had a function to uh, actually warn your kids, quote unquote, if they are sitting the proximity too, alert. too close to the screen. <laughs> and it also incorporates things like gesture controls if you don't feel like actually speaking out loud to your TV. And this is clearly something I personally wouldn't leave connected permanently, but it is interesting nonetheless. And it does come with it. It seems like it is a removable item if you do not want this when you actually purchase something like the... Uh, the upcoming A95L QD OLED television. And I'll be sure to include a really nice YouTube demo that Sony produced, which has some of the nicest sounding audio I've seen on a YouTube video of late that highlights all of the features I've just discussed. But that was pretty interesting. Oh, it's funny. They're basically saying they detect your viewing distance and they adjust, quote, voice zoom automatically and apparently the brightness of the monitor. Which is not like having the cameras like a lot of the a lot of the cameras in professional AV integration. They can now actually zoom in and crop and frame and crop multiple people in the room into one panel on the screen. But this is kind of fascinating because I mean, what's the last time you saw anybody talking about having a conference like a well, not a conference, you know, a FaceTime style conference on on the TV in the living room? That was the main thing I was curious about. Is does anybody actually use the TV in their living room as something to do like webcam chats with, either through a notebook or maybe an app built into the TV, a la with the Sony Bravia cam? And in the case you mentioned, too, with the 
audio optimizations, yeah, it's something like driving the sweet spot around the room, depending on where you're sitting, that I found kind of interesting, or at least in terms of the the voice reproduction of certain content. And anyway, take a look at that demo video on YouTube. I'll be sure to link that as well as a link to the uh, product page on the Sony website. It's a $200 accessory. It's compatible with a variety of 2022 and 2023 TVs. And it's kind of interesting. Also, I was checking out the latest reviews for the Quantum Dot OLEDs and their comparison to the latest and greatest OLED technology from LG Electronics. Specifically, I was looking at the Samsung S95C versus the mm-hmm. LG G3. Those are effectively the premium OLEDs we're going to be having access to for 2023. Ratings has done their official review of the Samsung S95C OLED, and you can view that on their website right now. And the wonderful Mr. Vincent Teo at HDTV Test did a review of the LG G3 television. Bottom line, both of these are world-class TVs, worthy of your consideration for a premium TV experience. Now, some notes I found uh, looking at both of these reviews was that the micro lens array technology that integrates into the G3 television from LG is really helping out with things like brightness and viewing angle. The new G3 is hitting up to 1400 nits on a 10% window, and that's using a calibrated HDR picture configuration. That is a nice bump in performance compared to the G2. And like I mentioned, that also improves off-axis viewing. You should see fewer artifacts if you sit further and further off to the sides of the sweet spot right in the middle. Now, OLEDs have pretty good wide viewing sweet spots already, but there have been some artifacts that you can notice with certain test patterns, uh, specifically seeing red and green artifacts on the edges of the screen, depending on where you're sitting within the room. The micro lens array technology will help improve efficiency for a given brightness level. So say with a G2 and a G3 side by side, at about the same brightness, the G3 is gonna be consuming less electricity. And just keep in mind real quick that for the G3, that premium panel, the MLA technology, that micro lens array technology is only available on the 55, the 65, and the 77 inch sizes. And the G3 is made to be wall-mounted. A table stand is optional or extra. And then for the S95C from Samsung, it's actually about the same level of brightness for 2023, about 1,400 nits. Uh, I think they had about 1,350 reported by the folks at ratings with calibrated HDR content. Uh, With that kind of difference between the G3 and the S95C, you would be pressed to notice a difference in brightness comparing those two TVs side by side. And uh, thankfully, there appears to be no tracking oddities with the brightness levels with different size test windows, as we saw with the S95B, the 2022 model, at the launch of that TV at least. If you do the industry standard 10% window, you were getting one result. If you change that by even a percentage or two, Uh, up or down, it would suddenly give you a different result. I think Samsung took note of all of that and decided, you know what, Uh, we're confident in the performance of this particular screen. No more shenanigans, so to speak. Uh, One difference, too, with the S95C compared to last year's model is that it has that one Kinect box. So if you're looking forward to having an experience where all of your inputs are in a separate box that can either attach to the back of the TV as part of its stand, Or if you've wall-mounted this TV, you can have one single cable going up to the TV and then have all your inputs basically right next to the components you'll be plugging in. And that's pretty, pretty cool. 
I'd say for most users, either of these TVs is going to provide a good built-in OS experience. And if you're looking at the pricing, well, actually, the pricing for Sony's version of the QD OLED has not been announced yet. So we're waiting on that. But generally, you're paying a bit of a premium for Sony's polish and performance with their version of any TV. And if you find that is a little much for the budget, as far as the QD OLED technology goes, consider looking at that Samsung model in a size that works for you. And you should be able to save a little money that way. So... Quick question on on Sony and LG's OLEDs. Are they both using the MLA, the micro lens array? And if not, what exactly does the micro lens array do? Because part of me thought that was actually amplifying light, or am I just confusing what that layer is doing in the television? Currently, that's only, as far as I know, available with LG Displays panels. Uh, for this mm -hmm. G3 series, you'll also find it from other manufacturers. Currently, Philips Electronics in Europe, as well as Panasonic, they are offering premium models that integrate that, that layer. It is literally a filter layer that rests right on top of the OLED, the glowing OLED material. And what it's doing is these incredibly tiny little lenses are focusing light that would otherwise be scattering sideways and directing it straight forward. I assumed this would give the uh, improved efficiency and improved brightness, but what surprised me the most was that it actually helped with off-axis viewing. Uh, I found that to be pretty damn cool. Uh, the S95C, the difference there with Samsung's technology for their QD OLED, comes down to the, the sub-pixel structure. With Samsung's approach, they're doing red, blue, and green literally spots on the screen in a triangular-shaped pattern compared to the striped white, red, blue, and green sub-pixels that you find on LG's technology. Now, one area where you will see a visual difference with this is in the use of the ever-increasingly popular PC monitors out there. When you display text on these displays, there can be issues related to things like fringing, especially with Samsung's technology. People were noticing that with either diagonal lines or around the edges of text on the screen, you'd get some slight color fringing that was uh, not the best look, so to speak. And in the case of the WRGB, that RGB striped pixel design with the extra white subpixel, there have been some tricks and tips in terms of improving its ability to render text as well. In particular, I'm seeing that they're using blue in effect as the center of the RGB layout when it comes to rendering text on the screen, and that can help improve text legibility overall. Now, this striped RGB can also be literally reversed to something called BGR, where blue comes first, then green, then red. And if you're using a computer setup, it's important to know the order of these stripes. Otherwise, you get further degradation of your text rendering. And things like the clear type tool built into Windows is one way that could be used to help adjust for this. However, the current setup with clear type, at least as far as Windows goes, is that it will apply the fix across all monitors that are connected to a particular computer. Uh, even if they are using different technologies, it's like you only get one size and it has to fit everything. There isn't individual controls for specific displays in the event that they are different types of display technologies. That's one thing that's actually currently being worked on, and the GitHub page for Microsoft actually has a Power Toys section where they are talking about a ClearType version 2.0 
which will better handle these types of fixes and determining if you are running, say, a, a traditional striped RGB panel or something like a WRGB panel from an OLED or a newer LCD using a BGR layout or where this also comes into play and quite dramatically and a reason why Microsoft should be interested in this is that when you think about tablets, uh, it's very likely you could turn your tablet sideways or even upside down and it's important to know which order the subpixels are in so you can do proper rendering of things like fonts and other aspects of just making that display look good no matter how you're looking at it. I'll be sure to put a link to that GitHub page as well. It includes some pretty interesting information. Apparently with the display types that we're seeing with the quantum dot OLEDs, that, that almost pentile subpixel structure, there are solutions out there, but they tend to be specific to a particular display and they are proprietary and they're not like a generalized fix across an OS with any particular panel that happens to support this. So anyway, it was just something that kind of caught my eye and I was curious if anybody was working on this. And yes, people are clearly uh, knee deep trying to make this TV technology look really good as far as your professional display technology as well. Anybody shopping for one of these newer TVs, maybe a G3 or an S95C, well, when it comes to LG's televisions, I would say that if you could find a G2 or a C2 at a terrific price point right now, I would have no problem recommending that over a G3. However, if you were originally thinking of maybe going for the S95B from Samsung, I would really kind of wait and see with the S95C uh, to see how that pans out in the end, because it looks like it's an improvement across the board uh, as far as the build quality goes, and it definitely has fewer of those weird quirks that the S95B had upon launch. It mm. seems like it's a more mature panel already, even in its second generation. I, I think all of the TVs I've just talked about would be great for gamers, and if you absolutely want a display with Dolby Vision support, well, if that's super important to what you're doing, then it's likely going to be something based upon an LG panel for you right now. Or wait for Sony and their version of the A95L that's coming out soon. Anyway, there's a lot of good stuff happening, at least in the premium or the super premium OLED world right now. And I'm just looking forward to seeing more of these in people's houses and being put to good use. Good to hear. It's interesting looking at what's going on in terms of uh, desktops and production. Cause it's, we had a funny question about the new Haydn Pedens jack on MacBooks, MacBook Pros and the, and the minis and everything else. And it's literally seems to be Apple trying to make their platform function with some traditional headphones that are used in, in production environments. And it was a really weird moment to see, you know, Apple in a really peculiar way and Windows maybe finally kind of sort of acknowledging that they can do things to make the life easier for the people that create content. I mean, <laughs> let alone color management. What got me rolling down that last bit of content I was just talking about there regarding, you know, subpixel layouts and things like that had to do with color calibration. And in the Windows world, it's a bit of a mess. It's really kind of disappointingly bad compared to what Apple does. Apple has a fairly mature and robust calibration engine built into their OS that handles different scenarios and different content types appropriately as far as getting the most out of whatever display you're looking at. And within the Windows environment, you have to be pretty careful about what you're doing and what's going on exactly in the back end of it. 
And uh, even this morning, I was experimenting with the the Windows. I guess it's a power tool. You have to download it from the Microsoft App Store, but it's for HDR calibration, quote unquote, for your display. Mm. And I, I recommend anybody rolling with an HDR monitor in Windows to download that tool. It's very easy to use, and it may very well uh, fix a few issues that I was finding, at least in terms of having a washed out SDR desktop compared to HDR performance as well. It was just, uh, I'm kind of surprised that's just not built into Windows already and that I had to download a separate tool to make some basic tweaks (laughs) regarding what's the black level detail, what's the peak brightness of the monitor I'm currently using and have Windows be aware of that. And I will be sure to put a link to that tool as well, but you can Google it. It's pretty easy to find. It's worth downloading and checking out if you have an HDR monitor in a Windows environment. So I mentioned last week uh, playing around with the HDR button on the remote on my Epson 5050UB. Um, uh, I guess I should refer to it. Some people call it the HDR slider. The And it's interesting to look at because it turns out to there is a manual adjustment from like, I want to say 1 to 16 inside of the Epson 5050UB. And I started manually tweaking the settings while uh, rewatching The Long Night. That's the Game of Thrones episode, the final battle for Winterfell. Um, and essentially, it works like adjusting brightness without screwing up calibration. Uh, I oversimplify. Oh, yeah. The episode is still stupid dark. Um but it was a vast improvement in many scenes. And, you know, the general consensus is that you may or may not want to manually adjust this with different movies. Because I'm waiting to see something. At, I, I keep thinking I'm going to see something that is not a particularly dark HDR production and it'll look blown out. So far, I haven't found that. I haven't had enough time to watch 10 million movies and kind of make an overall assessment. That's a tone mapping control, if nothing else. Yes, it is manual on your... I forgot about this, actually, but it is manual on the 5050. Some of the newer projectors are incorporating a dynamic tone mapping system that will actually look at the content, its code words for peak brightness and things like that, and make adjustments accordingly. Uh, However, if you do have the 5050, you may find that certain content authored at different brightness levels uh, Mm -hmm. may require a slight tweak to look its best. And it it may be a challenge to find a happy medium where one setting will work with most of your content. So at least you have that control and it's something fairly easy to use, but it's uh, kind of a bummer that you you do have to occasionally automatically. Yeah, that would be nice. Well, it's funny. And and I'm going to talk in the next couple of episodes about some of what's going on in terms of cinematography and, and, and brightness, but it was, it was interesting, right? Because there was some, a point where I decided it was too bright. But it was amazing how much, I, I want to say legible, or, or how much more you could make out in certain scenes by, by you know, dropping that setting down to four instead of, I think, 12 where it came from the factory. And I was also fascinated, there's very little documentation on this in Epson's manuals for the projectors, which kind of drove me nuts. Um, but I, I also remember mentioning a quote recently uh, about, you know, a cinematographer talking about where the light's coming from. So it turns out that is from... 
a conversation between Sean Astin and Lord of the Rings, talking to Oscar-winning cinematographer Andrew Lesney. And Sean Astin's like, where's the light coming from? I guess he was having a mething acting kind of moment because uh, they were shooting. In, it should have been a very dark tower. And he was like, why is it so bright in here? And Lesney replied, quote, same place as the music, unquote, <laughs> which I really like. Right. Because, you know, there's a, a great Vanity Fair interview uh, or article column that's talking about, you know, Game of Thrones and why it's so dark. Uh, and you know the the comment that the author made that this is why helm's deep if you remember this battle is quote lit up like fedway park making every grim king glam archer and shield surfing elf easy to pick out in a crowd and when you talk to the fabian wagner the the director of photography on that episode of game of thrones um they said i wanted to evolve the lighting or i should say he said i wanted to evolve the lighting you know, so that the storytelling of the lighting evolved with the storytelling of the characters. And when you cut this to the bone, when you oversimplify this, is that basically Beric and Melisande, uh, they bring fire, which brings light, which brings hope to scenes, and you can actually see things. And, you know, it also, I will say, with this setting tuned up, uh, that whole early scene with the Dothraki, which... If you've never seen it, I won't ruin it for you. Uh, and if you're ready to watch eight seasons of Game of Thrones to get there, it's totally worth it. Uh, you know, makes it even more terrifying because you can actually see the lights uh, that are going on. I, I don't want to like over describe anything. And if I've just ruined, um, you know, <laughs> Lord of the Rings for you, you know, by talking about the light, but it, it's it's funny, right? Because these these are always artificial decisions. You know, the, the, the DP, the director, they work together with the lighting director and they create this overall thing, which can be like I was watching the third man on the Criterion with the kids. Very dramatic lighting. You know, it's very it's black and white. It is incredibly dramatic lighting. Um, one of the other things that came out recently was the studio nearly canned the production of The Godfather because they were so upset because the lighting was so dark. Right. Instead of, you know, clearly having even lighting and and highlights emphasizing you know the characters there was this idea that that the cinematographer was bringing out the darkness of the mob characters and the studio was super upset about that and then of course it turned out and won like a staggering number of oscars so they decided that maybe maybe the director knew what he was doing indeed oh goodness let the creatives be creative <laughs> yeah, let the auteur auteur for gosh sakes um were you surprised by the number of people in the u.s that use game consoles for video streaming because it was way lower than i thought it was going to be i'm not sure i i think i am a little surprised but then i realized we are a world or at least a nation here of convenience and if something's built into a tv you're more likely to use the thing that's built in. And especially if that's the remote you're picking up most of the time and it has the pre-programmed buttons for a variety of different popular services out there. This was something I saw over at Flat Panels HD and basically they were reporting upon some research that had been done late last year regarding how we consume our streaming TV sources and what devices in particular are we using? And it turns out that 50% of folks are using whatever's built into the TV itself. 
And I think of TVs like, say, if I have a Roku TV, so to speak, right. uh, I guess I'm not really surprised by that. It's like it should be an updated environment. It should be very capable. It should be well tuned for the particular display device, given that it's built in. And I just I just go back to thinking about things like, you know, we were talking about Sony and Samsung and LG. They have, you know, their own respective app platforms. And folks, generally, if you're going to make a guess as to what somebody's using to stream any particular content, it's probably what's built into the TV. And second to that would be the streaming media players. And that was representative of 21% of the people polled. And that includes things like your Apple TV or, uh, say, a Roku Premiere Ultra or a Google TV or whatever. And uh, right. And then what kind of got me was that apparently the uh, set-top boxes as provided by, say, your cable or satellite set-top providers. And the apps built into that represented 9%. And that was the next of the top three right there. And then finally, game consoles. And then if we want to get into <laughs> PC users, represented all of 3%. And then uh, DVR users, 2%. Blu-ray players and other both rolling in at a respectable 1% each. So definitely the, the majority is with smart TVs and the apps built in and then the streaming media players making up a good chunk of what's left. And I, I guess I'm not surprised, but it was good to actually see uh, see that in a well-presented graph and just to take a quick look yeah. and, and inhale it, so to speak. Aluma Streaming Video On Demand Research, December 2022. I'm not surprised that nobody's watching on Blu-ray players. I was shocked that 50% of smart TVs, uh, or 50% of it is is smart TV. Yeah, systems. that's a good point. And just to, for anybody out there with a, maybe an older smart TV, and you've you've found that the experience is becoming less and less compelling over the years, any modern media player like an Apple TV or a Roku Premiere Ultra can be added to yeah. any TV to provide an updated or snappier video streaming experience. The newer streaming boxes or the ones that are optimized for 4K generally provide uh, faster compute hardware and better Wi-Fi performance as well if you're using this over a wired network or a wireless network. While what you have built into the TV seems to be quite popular and it's probably good enough if you are in need of an update, just remember there are plenty of great options out there that can be added to any particular TV. You don't have to live with what's built into it. You can definitely upgrade as you see fit. Go forth and upgrade. It may make a staggering difference to you. Just saying. Hey, let's take a moment to thank all of our patrons. We've been going back and go. We started at the very beginning of AV Excel, and we are up to April 22nd, 2018, which is oddly close to the, you know, a year ago today. Uh, well, five years ago today, because I can do math. <laughs> but a big shout-out to Dewey, Kyle, Googs, M. Balders, Michael Low Miller, and Mike and uh, for being patrons since April 22nd through May 4th, 2018. We truly appreciate your support of AV Excel, and we thank you, thank you, thank you for making the show possible. I've got a couple 
couple classic viewer questions here. Uh, one's, we, we get this every so often. Jay emailed us at avxl.com. He says, I know it is good to have your front speakers matching for better sound. Do you need the rear speakers to match as well? Can you talk about Atmos speakers for those that can't do in the ceiling? Thanks for all you guys do each week, Jay. Well, thank you, Jay. I, I'll be honest with you. I'm I, I, I'm not anal retentive about a lot of things in life. Um as any of a number of people can attest, uh, I am a little anal retentive about speakers. Uh, I like to keep it simple and use speakers from the same lineup and the same manufacturer uh, it, it, for no small reason. It, essentially, right, they should all have the same timber and pitch. That generally means they have matching tweeters and similar woofers. Uh, and I'm not going to hear the, the sound change or shift pitch as something zooms by my head from, from front to rear. I can be an obnoxiously critical listener. Uh, that said, you know, if you spend some quality time around AVS Forum or any of a number of other places on the internets, you will read about how rears and fronts and even the left and center and right front don't need to be matched. Um, and people go off on this. And on some level, I get where they're coming from. Personally, I want your left, center, and right to match, and I think you should get something fairly close sound-wise to them for the surround channels, uh, you know, and make sure the left and right surrounds match each other. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, something to think about here, though, right? This is the matching speaker thing, I think, is a bigger deal with Atmos than it is with 5.1 or 7.1, because Atmos has a lot more going on in terms of what it's doing with sound to steer sound objects in the space around your head, rather than, say, panning audio from fronts to rears. It's a... It's it's a, it's a pretty, you know, a 5.1 is a pretty blunt shifting of if a train is going from the front right to the rear right. That's a, a pretty blunt thing compared to some of the stuff that's going on with very sophisticated movement of sound through space with your Atmos speakers. I think that goes back to where he was asking also, can you talk about Atmos speakers for those that can't do in ceiling? And that's where yeah. you need something that can provide height in essence, for that audio source. And ideally, you're having something like an up-firing speaker at that point. Yeah. Or there are sound bars that specifically aim sound upwards and around uh, to make that effect seem more compelling and, and closer to what you might experience with, you know, dedicated in-ceiling speakers firing down at you. Yeah. I mean, when you look at essentially what they call like Atmos add-on speakers or up-firing speakers or... There's a, several different names for it, but essentially the challenge with them is, one, you have to have a level, smooth, flat ceiling that is within, you know, probably that, I want to say, you know, eight foot, eight to ten foot range. And it's it's worth, if you have a particularly high ceiling, if you have a big cathedral ceiling that's at an angle, if you have a popcorn ceiling, if you have a textured ceiling, if you have a ceiling fan in the middle of your ceiling, those are all going to be problematic for yeah. using um, Atmos-enabled speakers to bounce, right? Because literally, you know, like everything else we talk about with, with Atmos and surround sound, there's a lot of math going on here. It's like looking at a pool table. You hit a ball at a certain angle and it banks off of the rail to, you know, the other end of the pool table. If the rail isn't where the Atmos math expects it to be, or if there's a bunch of stuff between the cue ball and the ball you're hitting and the rail, things get messy. Um, you know, so, you know, if you can't, I think with the Atmos effects, because it's, they tend to be fairly, they tend to, 
be fairly higher frequencies, I think it's going to be less problematic to match those than it will be for, say, your left, you know, center, right, or your rear speakers. It's also one of those things, like, as always, buy it from a place you can return it if it doesn't work, test it out, see how it works for you. But, you know, again, the biggest thing with those Atmos-enabled speakers or up-firing speakers is making sure your ceiling is appropriate before you go spend the money on them. And also note to speaker positioning and make sure that those tweeters are aimed as mm. much as possible toward your listening yeah. space where you're sitting. And if you have some built-in calibration built into the AVR or the soundbar system you're using, make sure to take advantage of that as well. So it just knows or it has a better idea of where the listening sweet spot is in the room. And it can then optimize that, that 3D effect better for that particular environment. True that. Yeah. And another listener wrote in asking about doubling of subwoofers. Hi, <laughs> Robert and Patrick. I'm writing from Portugal and a longtime listener of your show. I need thoughts on how to connect two subwoofers to a not so modern Yamaha receiver with only one coax sub out terminal. Is it as simple as a splitter Y cable? Thanks. Love your show. And the down-earth approach to audio and video. All the best. Signed, Pedro. Well, I have good news. <laughs> yeah. It really is as simple as a, as a splitter Y cable. Um, you know, I, I don't know what your relationship is to Amazon, but one of the easiest ones to find, at least here in the States, is the MediaBridge Ultra Series RCA Y adapter 12 inches. And it goes on and on and on and on. The CYA-1 M2F-B. It's 10 bucks. Turns one RCA jack into, into two RCA jacks, or one male RCA jack into two female RCA jacks. And you just need one of those, and then you run cables. I'm actually using Y-Splitters from the RCA outputs of my desktop preamp to feed audio to a pair of subwoofers along with my desktop monitors. It works just fine. Um, if you get a hub on the subwoofer or your main speakers and the subs aren't plugged into the same outlet as the rest of your AV system. And sometimes even if they are fun, uh, you're probably looking at a ground loop or what we call a 60 Hertz ground loop hum. Try plugging the subwoofers into the same power strip if you can, or get what they call an isolation transformer, also known as a ground loop hum eliminator. Uh, you can find ones that basically will plug in your RCA subwoofer cable install gear makes one the iggli or ground loop noise isolator it's 14 bucks blue jeans cable makes one the swt1 they sell for 50 bucks and also if your subwoofers have a wireless options like a wireless transmitter that goes to the sub that should also make any ground loop hums go away um and i think svs makes yeah, SVS actually makes one. They're a little spendy, but for like 120 bucks, they have what they call their SoundPath wireless audio adapter, um, and that will actually do a wireless connection between any subwoofer, your 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 VC, your VCR, your receiver, your AV receiver, um, and your subwoofer. But that's a fairly easy way to do it, where they have, you know. Basically, you just need a power at both ends, and it wirelessly sends your subwoofer signal to your subwoofers. So that's another way of doing it. Nice. Yeah. Keeps it fairly simple. Oh, yeah. So what you watching, man? I'm probably going to dive into some more motorsports for the weekend, as well as some Call of Duty multiplayer. Uh, but anyway, I wanted to mention real quick a tweet I saw from Mr. Kevin Kelly. Ooh. He basically mentioned to me that there is now a multi-view feature on YouTube TV for Formula One in addition to some other sporting events. So 
I'm going to see if I can get that working on my current setup so I can enjoy uh, multiple in-car views and maybe some actual uh, stats as well, all presented in one split-screen interface. And I, I haven't actually tried is this like feature out yet. it like six video feeds? Okay. I was going to say, is it like all of the video feeds at once? Should be two to four live feeds simultaneously, and I am Whoa. just going to experiment and see if the feature's available with my current plan and how easy is it to actually enable it and what the performance looks like when you're doing all that sort of streaming. I assume it's going to work pretty well. I'm not really bandwidth limited here at the household, and uh, and I'll, uh, I'll let you know. I'll let you know next week. I I, I hope this with bated breath. Heck yeah! I hope this actually ends up rolling out to multiple sporting events because it, it's just. Uh, I I think it for many different sporting uh, or even live events of many kinds. It's just something that gives you a better overview of the whole thing at once especially with live events in particular it would be nice if they could just limit the advertising to one particular screen or one of the tiled windows and then leave some view of the live event running in the background so you're not missing anything because it's the worst with live events where they do commercial breaks and completely just take you out of the race and then you come back and it's been several minutes later who knows what happened? Yeah, sure, they can go back and show uh, replays of what may have occurred while you were away, but it's just not the way to do it with a live event. Uh, figure some way to either minimize the commercial breaks <laughs> or, as many broadcasters are doing currently, is just simulcast it with, you know, uh, half screen it or split screen it or however you want to do it. Have the advertising happening while... Uh, you're still able to at least see a small window of what the live feed is showing. And anyway, a minor complaint, but something I do encounter every now and then. And I'm just like, what are they doing? This is a live event. It's suddenly, it's like, uh, <laughs> we, we, we have no idea what's going on. And anyway, woe is Got me. <laughs> Poor boo. Yeah. Oh, goodness. If you got a question for us, do us a favor, email ask at avxl.com. What you ask us and email us about and tweet us about that helps us guide the show and get you what you're interested in. So please email ask at avxl.com or tweet at Robert Heron, at Patrick Norton, or at avxl. And uh, with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next time on avxl.